Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's national office and the host of this series. In today's episode, we're talking about the scope of income tax accounting under AFC 740. This is an older standard and impacts almost all companies. And this is the first in an occasional series about accounting for income taxes. And I'm looking forward to starting at the top and bringing some clarity to the gray zones. Joining me in the studio are Jen Spang and Cassie Bauman, both from PwC's national office. Jen and Cassie specialize in tax accounting. So with the introductions behind us, let's get started. Jen, Cassie, thanks so much for joining me in the studio today. Looking forward to discussion about income taxes. I think this is a topic that impacts most companies, maybe with the exception of partnerships. And I think you'll probably give me a few more tidbits on that later in the podcast. But before we even get started, one of the things we've been talking about on all these Back to Basics podcasts is just how old these standards are. And if I understand correctly, we go all the way back to the issuance of FAS 109, and then maybe there's been a few changes since then, but not much. So what's your age here of how long this has been out there? Yeah, it, it is pretty old. It's been out there for a while. So, and the biggest probably change to old FAS 109, right, which was, you know, pre-ASC 740, would be FIN 48, which is the standard for uncertain tax positions. There was a post-implementation review done on the standard, and the results of that were generally that, as an overall matter, the standard wasn't broken, although there were some focus areas which the FASB has actually been continued to focus on. But for the most part, there haven't been any major overhauls of the income tax accounting standard. That's maybe good, considering there's been major overhauls of the income tax code. <laughs> so probably enough for people to deal with. So, <laughs> Okay, well, then why don't we jump straight into things and maybe start off with just what's in the scope of ASC 740. Yeah, clearly a, an important beginning, right? So anything that is a tax based on income is in with, within the scope of ASC 740. So that's federal, state, foreign, uh, can be local taxes anything based on income. Now, what is a tax based on income may be a bit more challenging, but fundamentally, a tax based on income is a tax that's based on some concept of a tax based on net income. So income, less deductions or less expenses. So then what is the exact definition of that? Well, so the standard doesn't provide an exact definition, and, and that truly does become part of the issue, right? You get into a question of, it might be obvious if, for example, you have a tax for which you get no deductions, um, so think like a gross receipts mm -hmm. tax, people pretty quickly can get to, that's a tax that goes above the line, if you will, in, you know, as part of pre-tax income versus on the tax provision. Contrast that to a tax where you get a deduction for all expenses, albeit you might have some haircuts or things like that, but essentially all of your expenses also result in a deduction. The gray zone is everything in between. So what happens if you only get a deduction for one expense? What if you get a deduction for you know most but not all? That's really where the gray zone fits. But no 
definition, if you will, in the standard. So I was going to say it sounds pretty straightforward until you mentioned the gray zone, because I think immediately then that means it's not that straightforward. So maybe, Cassie, turning to you, what types of things should companies be looking out for? So let me just via example might, might be helpful. So withholding taxes are a type of tax that a lot of companies encounter, multinationals especially. And withholding taxes are taxes that are withheld on distributions as they leave the tax jurisdiction. So it's often paid or remitted by the company that's issuing the distribution, not the one receiving it. Um, and that's who's cutting the check to the tax authority. And this could be in the form of like a dividend from a subsidiary to a parent. It could be an interest payment. It could be a royalty or some other type of distribution. So it kind of comes in all forms. Imagine that a, a subsidiary is paying a dividend to its parent of $100. And there's a withholding tax in the subsidiary's jurisdiction of 10%. So when they, like the cash leaves their door, only 90 is going to make it to their parent and 10 is going to go to the taxing jurisdiction. So the parent really, in theory, was entitled to a $100 dividend, but they only got 90 because 10 ended up going to the tax authority. It just didn't come out of their coffers. It, it just never made its way to them because the subsidiary paid it. So your point being then, if it's a tax that's based on income, as Jen was talking about, then even though they weren't paying it themselves, they still would have to report it as part of their FAS 109 or the ASC 740 provision in their financial statements. Potentially, yep. And that's kind of the next thing to cover and think about. There's a couple considerations. So one might be to think about, you know, is the tax that on the distribution with the distributing entity, the one that's, you know, actually paying the government, only have to pay that if and only if they made the distribution. It's, that's first thing to consider. Second thing is when you look at the recipient of the dividend, are they getting a tax credit in their local jurisdiction for the taxes paid to that other government. If both of those things happen to be true, then in that case, the tax is, is not a tax of the paying entity, but is a tax of the receiving entity. And it could be, and often is, an income tax in that case. So then I guess in the consolidated financial statements, maybe not a big deal, but if you're doing separate company financial statements, definitely something to focus on. That's right. Okay. And then actually one question maybe for either one of you that I meant to ask Jen when she was speaking. So you talked about these taxes based on, for example, revenue and that they're above the line, so they are not subject to this. So then what models do you follow if you have those types of taxes? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's um, there's not a single answer, right? Okay. Because some taxes could end up being an offset to revenue. Um, we'll talk a little bit about credits and things like that. So you could have it in revenue. It could be in other expense. So there's no one model. Once you get above the line, you have to go figure out what it is. Yeah, so it really then comes down to the substance that's of what right. the arrangement mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's helpful. So then maybe that's actually a good lead into our next topic, which would be um, tax credits and benefits. So obviously, now we have to understand what's in the scope, and we've talked about tax credits. So our tax credits always in the scope of ASC 740? Well, I find when I'm answering questions about taxes, it always is, it depends. Yes. Right? Okay. So they're clearly common, and we've seen this for the last at least 10, 12, 15 years, I'd say, where you've seen a definite uptick in different kinds of credits. And frankly, you know, a, an evolution in what they look like, actually, from a governmental perspective. So whether or not they're within the scope of income tax goes back to exactly what we started with. 
is it is it an incentive or a credit that is connected to an income tax? So if you think about it, if it is a credit that is contingent on or you only can get that credit if, in fact, you have a tax liability, you're going to tend to think that's connected to mm -hmm. an income tax. But in some cases, credits might be, um, a company or an entity might be able to monetize those credits irregardless of whether they have a tax liability or not. And in those cases, you would not expect those to be an income tax. Yeah, that's interesting to say that because actually I very recently had gotten this question about, I think it was someone setting up a headquarters, they were getting a tax incentive, and you know, looking at all this stuff related to income taxes, but then they were able to monetize it. And so to your point, it was out of scope and we had to look at different models for right. it. Right, it starts to look a, a lot more like a subsidy or something right. like that. Right, or like a government grant, or a potentially. a government grant, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Okay, I guess what, what does it mean in those cases where it, you are mon potentially monetizing your tax credits? What are the potential impacts? Well, typically I'd say if the credit or incentive is um, a company can basically monetize it without any connection to taxable income, it'd be you know not a tax credit that goes on the tax line. But maybe one point there is facts are really, really important, and that goes back to something you just said. Some of these credits are indeed, you can monetize them, but there can be a difference in certain jurisdictions on how you choose to monetize the credit. So said a different way, there have been credits where in the U.S., for example, if you actually just go ahead and treat the credit as a reduction of future, you know, taxable, um, future tax payments, right, income tax payments, mm -hmm. then the state won't, a state, let's say on a federal basis, the state won't tax that. But if you actually go to the government, the federal government, even though it's fully within your rights to do so, if mm -hmm. you go to the federal government to actually get a cash refund of that credit, the states in some cases will actually tax that as, uh. as income. So in that case, if that's your fact pattern, and let's say that state is a very significant part of your overall portfolio, then that might be a disincentive for you to get a refund from the government. And in that case, we think you should understand the facts, and that might move you to an income tax accounting. So I think the key message here is that the facts are really, really important. And I think you know we spend a lot of time on it, and credits and incentives are not always very clear. It takes a bit of um, detective work to really understand them. Right, and it sounds like it's gonna be really critical, and I was gonna ask you the question, to understand that potential difference between state and federal, because federal might be one way, but all the states could be different ways, it right? So, okay, that's very helpful. And again, I think it goes back to what you said about scope as well. You really need to understand what it is you're dealing with before you can make your accounting decision. That's right. So then, why don't we move on to a more specific question about scope, and it's something I started with, which was talking about partnerships and other non-taxable entities. So then, Cassie, I guess, what is the most important thing to think about if you're trying to figure out if you're even in the scope of the income tax guidance or paying income taxes? Yeah, so there's really kind of two ways to look at it. One we've talked about, which is what does the tax law say? How mm -hmm. does the tax actually operate? But then also the structure of the entity itself, like how how is it taxed or is it taxable to begin with? So legal structure itself is not necessarily a defining factor. You know, there are corporations, there are partnerships, there are limited liability corporations and other pass-through entities that actually pass their earnings up to their owners and maybe it's 
the income is taxed at the owner level instead of at the entity level. But what you really need to think about when you're thinking about 740, ASC 740, is that it applies to any entity that is subject to income tax. So that could be, for example, uh, you could have a, a limited liability company so you would think it's a pass-through, it's formed like a pass-through, but they could make an election to be taxed like a corporation. And so you, you have to kind of look through and look at the details rather than just say, oh, the legal entity itself is a pass-through. So that's kind of one thing to think about. You also have to remember that, as we were just talking about with state and federal on the credits, state and federal treatment can be different for entities, so some states might tax partnerships, whereas the federal government may not. So it could be in different countries as well. Something to keep in mind as you're looking across the portfolio of entities. And then I think the last thing is to remember where you are kind of in the org chart when you're thinking about this. So for example, you could have a corporation that has an investment in a partnership. And so you look at that partnership and think, oh, it's not taxable. But the corporation itself may have to record taxes related to that partnership, not just from the income that's coming up, but also on the difference between the book basis and tax basis of their investment in that partnership, which is called the outside basis. And so there may be corporate taxes that have to be recorded at the corporate level um, related to that partnership. Same thing goes with the income coming up from that partnership may be subject to some uncertain tax positions that the corporation may have to think about recording some sort of like UTP liability related to. So there's lots of different layers of things to, to think about when you're examining scope. So Cassie, I understand that the FASB has also been talking about the reflection of taxes in the separate financial statements to some of these entities. Can you talk a little bit about that? What they've been examining relates to the separate financial statements of the entity itself. So like a limited liability company within mm -hmm. a consolidated structure, maybe that limited liability, that LLC has to issue its own financial statements. And so what the FASB has been considering and what they plan to issue guidance on is discussing whether entities like that that may not be subject to tax directly, whether they have to have a tax provision effectively on their separate financial statements. And partnerships are still out of scope here. They're not in the mix here, but other flow-through entities potentially or disregarded entities could have the ability or the option to either apply a tax provision or not apply a tax provision. Now, partnerships are out of scope if it's not taxable. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. <laughs> and then, Cassie, that guidance is expected, but has not come out yet. That's correct. It should be out probably before the end of 2019, but it won't be effective. It'll be early adoptable, but it won't be effective until 2021 for calendar year and companies. So then why don't we move on to our last topic, which I think is sort of full circle back to the beginning when I was talking about the income tax reform. So we've talked about the definition of taxes, withholding taxes, tax credits and benefits, partnerships, other pass-throughs. And then are there any final reminders for people when they're thinking about the scope of the income tax guidance? Well, actually, I think it goes back to something you said, I think on the first point that we were talking about, and that's just the evolution of tax law. So while the standard hasn't had significant changes, global taxes, you know, sometimes people get focused just on one jurisdiction, but actually global taxes have seen a total evolution over, um, you know, frankly, even a huge evolution over just the last handful of years. And so probably can't be 
stressed enough that you really have to have you know the mechanisms in place to one know these changes are coming and then be able to analyze and assess them even as we look at digital tax and we talked about scope is it in scope is it out of scope and by the way if it's not in scope of the income tax provision where does it go when it goes above the line what does that look like so i think it's really just this point of the evolution requires you to constantly revisit the scope, if you will, of what is an income tax. So then when you mentioned digital tax, for some of our listeners, they're probably not even familiar with that because it is relatively new. So can you even explain what that type of tax is or example of it? Sure. So we've seen, uh, you know, as you look at how businesses have evolved, you look at how traditional tax law has been developed. It's really about where you have people, where you have property, you know, where you have an actual physical presence. But frankly, today, so many companies do an awful lot through digital. Mm -hmm. And that has just created in the global community a huge discussion around countries as to how to ensure that that base, if you will, is taxed. And so you've seen some jurisdictions come out unilaterally, but actually the OECD is working on an overall plan that will hopefully create a framework, if you will, for how to tax. And that will probably be a pretty significant development in the tax world. For those who don't know, what is OACD? Yeah, there's the tax in me. The (laughs) Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And now you know why I said OECD. Um, But it's a group of a number of countries that develop an um, economic and social policy. So you hear a lot about them. You've heard a lot about them over the last handful of years when people talk about some developments in reporting for taxes um, on a global basis. Yeah, and for our listeners, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but Jen does come from a a pure tax background. She's a tax accountant, not like the rest of us that are, I guess, regular accountants. (laughs) I know tax accountants don't like it when we say that. So So then is this sort of to have like parity across countries, which would be why these countries would work together on developing tax policy? Yeah, so parity might be a bit strong, but that's conceptually what it is, right? It's to come up with the framework that all of the member countries could agree to so that you're avoiding things like double taxation, you're avoiding you know, a significant increase in um, disputes for a company and a country where two countries are involved because you know, typically two countries are on, on either side right. of the transaction, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, so parity might be strong, but yeah, it, it's a framework that countries could buy into in okay. theory. And then the other question that came to mind when you were talking about this, is this similar to the question of nexus? So I think many people will be familiar with this idea that before, if something was being shipped into a state, if there was no employees there, maybe you didn't pay tax, and some of that's evolving now? Yeah, so we talk about nexus. It is. It, it is very much related to that. So what we've talked about is nexus historically has been based upon where you have people and property, right? So, um, and we certainly talk a lot about this from a state, a U.S. state perspective, but the same concepts exist globally. So where is your IP, your intellectual property located? There go your residual profits, if you will, from an overall transfer pricing perspective. So conceptually, it is a question of what is nexus when you're talking about a digital environment? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, and it. I guess the other point I'd make is some of these old standards, we've had sort of a theme that even though the standard's old because business keeps changing, you can't just say, oh, I know how to apply the standard. 
and kind of do the same thing every year, but it is going to be critically important to really understand how business is changing, in this case, how the tax landscape is changing, and then I guess how your transactions are changing, and then reassess how does ASC 740 impact that. Agreed completely. Good. Thank you guys so much for coming in today. Thanks for having us, Heather. Thank you. Please join me here again next week when we focus on the accounting for debt modifications. My guest will be Suzanne Stefani, a director in our national office who focuses on debt-related issues. Many of you will recognize Suzanne from her discussion of debt restructurings in our September Accounting and Reporting Developments webcast. In next week's podcast, we'll build on that discussion and then delve deeper into the models and accounting considerations. To make sure you catch next week's episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a review or reach out to me on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.